Well, good morning. I trust you'll keep your Bible open there to Colossians chapter 3. As we get into this, let me pray here this morning. I've had one of those mornings where it doesn't matter that I've been up since five something. I can't seem to get my brain in the right gear. You know, so I definitely need some prayer. So if you don't mind, I'll give a moment of silence here. Uh, Pray for me as I pray for you uh, just here in a second. So please, if you would, bow and pray. Father, we need you more than we know. We need you every hour as the song goes. We need you day by day. We need you in our strength as well as in our weakness. We need your word to shine light into our darkened minds and understanding. We have been illuminated with the Holy Spirit. By his power, we have been given the word, and yet, Lord, we fail to apply it. We fail to use it. We refuse to connect many times to you and run on our own strength. Lord, help us to turn from our ways, our wicked ways that are unlike your son and walk in dependence. May we grow in the knowledge of your will and in the performance of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a great need that we all have to go to war. I uh, personally enjoy the uh, sobriety that reading about times of war and... We'll see how this microphone does. I enjoy the sobriety of watching even a movie about war. That is one that isn't glorifying the, the battle and making it something that it's not. Um, <laughs> interesting start for me here. Switch to this if it keeps crackling there, fellas, because I don't think I'm good enough to you know, keep that going. Anyway, so recently I was watching a movie called The Outpost. I don't recommend you watch it per se. It's full of typical language that you would expect from a war movie. But I did enjoy the sobriety that it brought as it made me think about the cost that is paid for freedom in this country. Well, when we speak of freedom, of course, in America, it is a relative freedom, isn't it? We are not truly free. We are limited in that freedom, as we know. We pay taxes on just about everything. Uh, more or less everything you do is regulated in some sense. And yet we like to be excited or we feel very proud of America in certain ways because we fail to see just how enslaved we actually are. But when the Son of God comes to set us free, you will be free indeed. But there is oftentimes a game that we play, and that is a game with sin. We mess around with it. We act like it's not really that serious. We fail to understand just how much it wants to own us. If you go back to Genesis in the beginning, you find that Adam and Eve were owned by passionate desire for that which they were not to have. And then we find, of course, that Cain longs to have the approval that his brother does. 
And then when he doesn't get it, he's willing to kill his brother because of what? Because his brother's deeds were righteous and his were not. Uh, the Lord comes and speaks to Cain and says, Beware that sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, to master you. You guys have heard some of my stories about our household cat. We got a goofy little cat a few years ago. And this cat is, generally speaking, pretty gentle. Uh, it's actually surprisingly gentle. There was somebody came over the other day and they had a baby. And the baby was sitting there in my lap and the cat comes over because that's curious. You know, it's a cat. Cats do. And it snuggles right up with us and it looks at the baby and the baby just pets the cat. And pets like a baby does. Not like, you know, you would. You'd be gentle. Baby just is like, you know, one of those. And then it continues to look, and the baby girl just grabs the ear of the cat. And the cat just leaned into it and was like, all right, it's okay. But the cat isn't always that well behaved. Sometimes what it likes to do, especially to Maya, our youngest, is it likes to wait for her to come around a corner. Or it likes to wait for her, especially to come around a, a, this particular couch at the house, and Maya will come walking through, and then the cat just, ha! jumps out at her, like it's going to kill her, like it's a mountain lion or something like that. The cat doesn't know its role very well in that moment, thinks it's truly a predator, but the, the truth is our cat is agoraphobic. You know what that means? That means it's afraid of open spaces. I'll actually take the cat outside sometimes, and it runs back in. Or it'll go outside and it'll go underneath the deck, because it can't handle all that freedom. The cat forgets what it is. The cat thinks it can take out Maya. And then it suddenly remembers it's a house cat and runs away from her when she goes on the attack. The reality is Maya's a better fighter than the cat, a better attacker. Anyway, the point here is that oftentimes we fail to see that sin is crouching around that corner. Sin's desire is not to play games with you like my house cat. It's not there to have a good time or to play around or to be your buddy. It's there to kill. And tragically, quite often what we do is we play games with sin and we fail to see that we ourselves are not really growing all that much. In Christ, We're not becoming that much more Christ-like. And the times we realize that is when fiery trials come into our lives. When a fiery trial comes, like the people of Ukraine are going through, or the people of Yemen are going through, which is not as reported as what's going on in Ukraine, or the people of Ethiopia, where there is a civil war that's been going on for nearly a year, when those kind of trials come into your world, into your life, something that is overwhelming, that is outside of your power and your control, now you start to realize, man, I really should have been paying attention. Because now what comes out of me is, is despair. Now what comes out of me is not this hope eternal, but quite often what happens is we realize that we're really not that solid in our faith. You know, when I look at Scripture... The more I study scripture, the more I want to be like Jeremiah. Not to go through the trials that he went through, but the more that I would, I would love to be able to find that God's mercies are new each morning, even in the middle of a bombed out, 
destroyed world. Jeremiah was able to find those mercies in the middle of the wreckage of his world, of his city. Jeremiah was not pouting like Jonah because he didn't get his way. See, the trial that Jeremiah went through, the trials that he went through, revealed an authenticity of faith that is glorious. The more I age, the more I look at Jeremiah, and I think, man, this guy was incredible. Just incredible. And he didn't get there just by somehow it happening to him. Jonah, on the other hand, well, he got in his own way. Didn't get what he wanted, so he pouted. And what he wanted was pretty ruthless. You know, the more I look at Scripture, the more I want to be found faithful and courageous like Daniel in the face of lions. Not terrified of public opinion like King Saul. I want to grow to where I can be like Paul singing in a jail cell, not like Solomon, saddened and sullen in a palace. You know, sometimes I wonder why I don't grow like I should, like I, like I feel like I ought to be growing. I remembered early on as a new believer growing rather rapidly. Many of you probably had the same experience. Uh, you, you cast away many of the false idols of your heart. You really started to take off and follow God, only to find that 10, 20 years later, you've slowed down in the race. Don't you ever wonder? Don't you ever ponder why it is that you're not growing like that? You know, and some might say, you know, God will give the grace in the moment if some fiery trial comes upon me. He'll give me the grace enough for the moment. I think most of us use that as a cop-out. Somehow I'll just magically find the strength. Fiery trials, instead, they reveal the authenticity of metal. They don't just make metal appear out of nowhere. That's alchemy. You know, that's magic. That's hocus-pocus. Fiery trials, instead, show us what we really are. And here's the thing that I run into in Scripture. If I really want to grow, if I really want to change, is it really all that difficult? Is it really as hard as I like to make out? Or is it actually as simple as, draw near to me, the Lord says, and I will draw near to you? Could it really be that simple? Something as monumental as growing in Christ's likeness becoming more and more like the Son of God who called us to be holy because he himself is holy, doesn't it have to be more complicated than that, than just drawing near to him? I mean, doesn't it have to be more complicated like, I don't know, middle-aged weight loss, right? Or understanding the global oil supply, you know, or, you know, these things are so complicated, many of these things in life. There's so many things that seem so hard, and if I really understand what it is that I'm asking for, when I'm asking to become more like Christ, shouldn't I expect it to be really hard to, to wrestle with? I think we do that sort of thing in our brain because we want it to be complicated because we want an excuse for why we are what we are, not what we ought to be. So, if it is as simple as drawing near, how do I do that? What does that look like? Two things. 
Number one, know who you are. And number two, know your role. So in knowing who you are, we look at Colossians chapter 3. Let me read the passage here for us again. He says here in Colossians 3, verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. This passage here highlights for us a few things about who you are. If you want to actually grow, if you actually want to change, the first thing you have to sort out is who you are. The, in making the case for this, we look at a series of indicatives. I'm going into some grammar stuff, which many people would tune out exactly when you go talking about grammar. But an indicative would be a statement of fact, a declaration. And there are various indicatives here in the text. In verse 3, you find these, this reality. You are dead. You died. In verse 1, you find another great reality, and that is that you were raised. In verse 3, you run into this wonderful reality as well about who you are. That is that you have been risen not only from the dead, but you are with Christ in heaven. In verse 9, we find that the old self has been laid aside. And you might think, well, I thought I was told to put that aside. No, it's saying that's already happened. That's in the indicative uh, tense here. What this is talking about is that salvation is when that exchange happened. The old self was put aside. And then verse 10 tells us the final thing about who you are, and that is that there is a new self that has been put on. So what is a declaration about who you are? This is a reality that I need to recite in my brain to get it through in my identity in Christ. I have died, and I have been raised, and I'm now with Christ in heaven. There is an old self that was put aside like an old garment and a new self that has been put on. Those are declarations of fact. Those are things that cannot change. Those are things that the devil and sin cannot rob you of, though it would try and would try to convince you that that is not true, so that you never live out the imperatives, which is next, the commands that are given to you. The statements of who you are, are is, what is, is what is going on in the first several chapters of Colossians. All that theological fun stuff, all those wonderful realities are there that then give rise to the imperatives. Know your role 
is the next thing you need to figure out. Imperatives are commands that are directed at you, things that you must do as a result of the indicatives. When I was uh, a new believer, I started going down to a Bible college in West Virginia. And I was used to Monday night football. I thought that's what we would do. It's a group of college guys getting together on a Monday night. They did not want to watch football in West Virginia. You know what they wanted to watch? Monday night wrestling. <laughs> I remember watching wrestling when I was a child. And it was um, Andre the Giant. Remember him? Monster of a human. And Hulk Hogan. Hulkamaniacs all over the world, brother. And that's what I remembered. So they're like, let's go watch some wrestling. I'm like, dude, what? Why would I go watch that garbage? So I watched it because that's what my friends were doing, and that's, what, that's the problem with choosing friends. They pull you into all kinds of funky stuff. But one guy that was the big deal at the time, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, just came into wrestling, that's my age, when I was uh, at college. And he had a famous line, know your role and shut your mouth. See, one of the problems that we get into in the Christian life is that we refuse to acknowledge that which is our role, the part that we play, the responsibility that we have. The imperatives are you and I knowing our role. There is an aspect that is God's, and that was what was just declared about you by God in those indicative statements. There is a reality that God has, has brought about in your life. You were crucified with Christ. Amen. To our great glory. So you died. And you were then raised with Christ. You now are with Christ in heaven. And the old self was crucified with its passions and desires, and there is a new self that has been put on. But here is what is asked, what is commanded, rather, of you and I. In verse 1, we find that what we need to do, what you need to do, is set your mind on the things above. An active, daily process of putting your mind in the right place, thinking about the right things. And then in verse 5, we find that we need to put to death our earthbound habits, our fleshly practices, which is elaborated on in verse 8, where we also need to rid ourselves of the degenerate ways of our past. So what we do now is we put this together. We put together the indicatives and the imperatives, the declarations and then the commands. And what we come up with is this. The Christian is called upon to become... In daily experience, in daily life and reality, and in habit, what they are eternally in Christ Jesus. We are to grow up into the things of God. We are in the process of being glorified. Now, when I hear that, when I start studying these kind of things, here's what happens in my brain. 
uh, when I hear the commands, I hear that, that those realities spoken about me and my identity in Christ, and then I start thinking about what it is I need to do, and what happens is I come up with a series of excuses for why I can't do it. I have different objections that I'll put up in my mind. I'll create a caricature of what that might look like to truly keep my mind in heavenly places and to actually following these commands to put to death the things that are in me. Well, I start to come up with a caricature of what that might mean. And I start to imagine that what it means, if I'm truly following these imperatives, is that I have to be a humorless, boring monk who lives off nothing but dolphin-safe tuna and some purified water. I start to imagine a caricature, like I said, of what it would be to truly be Christ-like. So that way I don't have to do it. That's not what it means to walk in Christ's likeness. Instead, what I find is that these objections, these excuses that I come up with, are things that I use to explain why I can't get from point A to point B. I actually can't, you know, God's asking an impossible thing of me here. So, what I do is I have excuses. My wife has been doing various uh, forms of working out, staying in shape, getting buff, all that kind of fun stuff for a while. She's been doing that for more than a year. She's doing CrossFit because she's crazy. Uh, she'll get up all early in the morning, like 6 in the morning or something like 6.30 in the morning, take off and all these things. And she's been after me like, honey, why don't you join me? <laughs> no. Why not? Because I like to sleep. Let's be real. See, a lot of times we prop up excuses. I've had a various list of injuries. I've got more broken bones in me than I remember. Not currently, but historically. I've had a series of injuries and problems, nerve problem in my back and stuff like that. And I oftentimes use that as the excuse for why I cannot. But the truth of the matter is, it's not that I cannot, it's that I will not. The truth of the matter, when I actually look at square in the face, this is not an issue of whether I can do some exercise. The issue is I won't. It doesn't matter where you're at. Priscilla and I years ago used to watch Biggest Loser. Anybody ever watch that show? You see some people in, in terrible, terrible shape. And you watch them steadily get better and keep moving. And so the excuse is, well, I don't have that dietitian and I don't have that coach around me and those doctors watching me and those kinds of excuses prop up. You know what? Stop it. You can get on the exercise bike for five minutes. You can lift a 10-pound weight. You can just sit there while you're watching Netflix and do some curls. You know? You can do that. Stop lying to yourself. And I don't really care that much if you get in shape. That's really not the issue. The real issue is stop making the excuses in your own life for why you can't get fit spiritually. Stop making the excuses, I'm too tired and I can't get up and all of those kinds of nonsense that you prop up. Excuses that you make for why you can't be what you ought to be in Christ. Now if this feels like I'm hitting you with a two by four, I kind of am. Because that's what I do to myself. Because sin is at war with me. It's not playing a game. 
It wants you to stay comfortable and cozy in your lazy boy, stay nice and fat and doing nothing. It wants you to not be able to be who you ought to be, who you actually are in reality. It does not want you to become that. Your flesh and the devil want you to remain as you are. So are you going to go to war or not? Are you going to make excuses? Are you going to make allowances, overlooked allowances? So how do I go to war? Well, I need to start putting to death what remains of the old ways of living and doing. Those are listed in verse 5 when he says this. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead. I actually don't prefer this translation of the text, and many don't as well. The ESV, I think, does a better job with this when it says this. Put to death what is earthly in you. Put to death. Like a firing squad. Go to war with it. Put it to death. That earthly aspect of what is still in you, remove it. That's a painful process. Well, like you, the objection or the, the question naturally would be, like what, Paul? You know, what is it you would like me to get rid of? Immorality, first of all, which is any form of sexual sin. Let me say that again. Any form of sexual sin. It's a broad word that encompasses anything, any illicit form of sexual act. Such sins in their culture and in their day and time were so normalized, so common, that they failed to register as actually being a problem. They failed to register as being any real problem. Now, how true is that today in our culture? How normal is it for people to be living together before marriage? How normal is it for people to, for us to watch shows that propagate this lifestyle as though it doesn't matter? One show, I mean, it's rare to find a show that doesn't promote or just, it's just so naturalized, it's so normalized in there. You ever watch Friends? Remember that show? Good grief. Like, half the show is them sleeping around with somebody. It's normalized. And Friends isn't even that bad compared to many of them. See, we, we allow this in the system. We make allowances for this. And then when we hear that so-and-so is doing this or that some Christian person, is, is so-called brother, is doing that, it doesn't even register as that big of a deal. It's become normalized in our system and in our thinking that it doesn't even register as that is a sin and an affront to a holy and righteous God. It's normalized. So they lived in a world that was very similar to ours. And the difference is that our culture actually has a Christian standard, ethical standard in the system that it's pushing back against. Their culture didn't even have that. Sexual sin was incredibly normalized. Prostitution was accepted as well as endorsed and embraced. So easy to do these things, to commit sexual immorality and not to even really blink as the, well, everybody does it. Right? This is how people talk about pornography now. This is it's so normalized. Like, yeah, what's the problem? Furthermore, he goes deeper than that. 
from immorality, he moves now to impurity. This is going beyond just the physical action here and gets into the thought life, the things that are entertained in the mind. Impurity. Any defilement. Surely, sin has its birth in the battlefield of the mind. No sin is truly acted upon until it has been mulled over in the mind and thought about for some time and then acted upon. Sin and impurity win the battle of the mind and then take over and invade the heart and move to our actions. Instead, if we, if we consider what we should be thinking about instead of impurity, we have it defined for us in Philippians 4, 8, when it says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. That's where the mind is to reside rather than impure thoughts. He moves beyond immorality and impurity now to passion. This seems to be progressing. Passion would be the overwhelming feeling that you cannot stop yourself. This would not um, have to be a sexual action that is taken, a sexual thing that, a thought that has been nursed until you feel overcome by it. But oftentimes, that's exactly what it is. That seems to be the context of what's going on here. Many people have thought they could control themselves because they entertained a thought in their mind for some period of time about another person, and they thought they were contained. They thought they would deal with the issue. They would keep it just in their mind, and then passion overtook them. Uh, many times we get passionate about things and we fail to see how far we've gone until we get a reality check. As I said, this doesn't have to be speaking of sexual sin itself, but anything that we passionately cannot control ourselves about. I've felt this at different times in my life when it comes to anger. An overwhelming sense of anger. I have that feeling sometimes when I read about some child being oppressed by a parent or a relative, and I don't mean just normal oppression, I'm talking about sexual deviancy of a parent going after a child, it makes you furious. Passionate, overwhelming feeling that you cannot stop yourself. Furthermore, he gets deeper into the discussion when he says evil desire. We move from immorality, impurity, passion. Now we're on to evil desire, which isn't much different from passion here. But if we think of passion as the physical act, evil desire would be the mental side of that discussion. Within, there is a desire that is truly evil. He then makes what I consider to be kind of a pivot. I don't know if you're like me, but I read through this and I hear immorality and I think of you know, obvious things that I can list there. And then it, then it goes to impurity. And now we move to passion, evil desire, and then he shifts over to greed. It almost feels out of place. I think it's better translated actually with covetousness. And if you think about it in those kind of terms, that might shift the discussion a little bit in your brain. 
Why is it that you are willing to be immoral or impure in your thoughts or passionate, unwilling to control yourself? Why is it that you nursed that evil desire until it gave birth to some horrible action? Well, because you wanted something that wasn't yours to have. You desired something so much that it took over the throne of God. That's exactly what he connects greed to or covetousness to. He says it amounts to idolatry. You know, it would seem, though, that, as I said, in my head, this doesn't sound as bad. Greed. I mean, we all have a bit of that, right? We all have a bit of covetousness going on, of wanting what I can't have, wanting what someone else has. But, you know, here's the thing. I, I think that oftentimes what we do is we fail to think of sin properly. We fail to see just how sinful it is. We fail to, to see that uh, something that seems to be a lesser sin, in many ways, is more dangerous than the greater sin. See, when you do something that's shocking, if you have a fit of rage, you know you did something dumb. You know you did something you need to repent of. You screamed at your child. You yelled at your wife. You slammed a door. Something like, you know, look, I messed that up. That was sinful. I need to repent of that, and you know it. So you know to pivot away from it. But the lesser sins in many ways are more dangerous because they are the ones that left the door open for the greater thing to come through. Consider what a small crack it takes for a termite to get into your house. And then consider the damage of once that termite gets in and brings his whole posse with him. Consider how small of a crack you need for the head of a snake to get through. And then consider all that follows with it thereafter. I mean, I hate, despise snakes. When I see them, I think, you know, I actually have read way too much about them, I think, because of morbid curiosity. But when I see one, I think, kill it. Kill it and burn it with fire. <laughs> Just bury it in the backyard, get rid of this thing. I don't want anything to do with it. But think about how easy it is for a snake to, to creep in. It doesn't take much of a hole. It doesn't take much of a crack in a wall for a snake to get its head through. And then all of that awfulness follows thereafter. I remember talking to a guy years ago. He worked at a clinic, a little health clinic out in some African tribe, you know, tribal areas and all this stuff, backwoods stuff. And he said the cobras would sneak in and they would uh, wrap themselves around the toilet, around the base of the toilet. And if you went in at night, yep. I mean, there was, you better turn the lights on, right? Turn the lights on and, you know, give a glance before you go sit down at the bowl because nobody wants a king cobra attached to their femur. You know, I mean, no thanks. Yeah, consider the great danger of what we make allowances for with little sins. They prop open the door so other things can get in. Why is it that you think so many so many bigger problems appear in your life. It's because you made the allowance quite often for small things that were able to drive a wedge which allowed large things to come through. Let me give you, let me illustrate this for you here for a second. I made allowance for tremendous failure when I decided to stay up late and binge watch a Netflix series. You can make great allowances. You can pave the way for your own downfall when you decide 
that you don't need to put limits on your smartphone. You can set yourself up to lose when you sleep in instead of getting up to spend some time with God. See, the lesser sin is you just, you're tired. You slept in. But now that pushed back your schedule. And now you've got to rush to get out of the house. And you're in a hurry, man. You're, you're eating Pop-Tarts and hustling out the door and getting in the car and zooming to work. And it all started with what? It's tired. You stayed up too late last night. As the old expression goes, Sunday morning begins on Saturday night. And if you can't get up in the morning, on Sunday morning, to get to church, that if you're struggling with that kind of thing, well, it wasn't just that you're lazy Sunday morning. It's that you didn't set yourself up to win the night before. You know, another thing that we do oftentimes is we make it easy for us to slip away spiritually as the shepherd of the home, as men, when we just don't pray with our wives, when we don't talk to our children about the Word, when we don't make those things happen. We make it easy for us to slip away. Those lesser sins often become much more dangerous than the greater ones because they come in unannounced and unheralded. They don't shock us, and so therefore we don't react to them. So, as I go back to what I'm looking at here in this passage, as I, I talk about what it is that I need to do, as I consider the, the indicatives and then the imperatives, the commands that are given to me, I go back to my, my real point here, which is why don't I grow? And a big part of that is that I don't view sin as God does. Notice what God called greed, as I said, idolatry. Idolatry. I fail to recognize what I'm playing with. It's like a child playing with fire who doesn't understand what they're touching, doesn't understand what they're going after. Like a child reaching up to touch a pan of bacon grease, boiling hot, has no idea what it's going after, has no idea the damage it will cause. But can you imagine if that child did grab that pan and pulled down in a bit of the grease, just one drop, Hits him. And the kid walks away and screaming and crying. And you try to help him out and all that. And you, after resetting the kid and helping him you know, get some ice on it and all that, the kid comes right back over and grabs the grease, grabs the pan. That's oftentimes what we are doing. We're playing around with sin and we fail to grasp the gravity of the situation. So, as I do realize it, as I do realize this is idolatry, this is bowing down to other gods, am I actually willing now to cut off the habits and the little things that I've let through the gate? Am I willing to cut those things off? The problem is, of course, that they come so naturally to us, don't they? I mean, when you look at verse 8, when he says here, now put them all aside, anger, Wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Doesn't that come so easy? So naturally to you? But wait a minute. Think of it. Was it really that easy, those things? Or is that just another lie the old self is telling you? 
Because think about why you came to Christ in the first place. Those things right there that are listed in verse 5 and verse 8 are exactly the kind of sins that were wearing you out, that were burdening your soul, weighing you down. Those are the things that made you come to Christ for the relief, for the joy of salvation. Those are the things that were on you, that you wanted to be free of. And now, instead of remembering the toil that that, the pain that that brought into your life, you're looking back like Israel, looking back at Egypt, thinking life was so good when we were slaves. Life was so grand when we were eating pots of meat and melons, as they said it. It wasn't that grand. It wasn't that great. It was a slavery that they longed to be free of. Didn't you long to be free from your sin? So what is the way to be free, to know a greater degree of that freedom? It is to cut off that which remains. Have the courage to prune the tree. Have the courage to recognize your role and what it is you need to do. Cut off that which remains so that new growth may come in. Believe that new growth, new growth truly is worth the pain of pruning. And know that if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. Let me pray. Father, we thank you that we can know that sin no longer has domain over us. It no longer holds sway. It is a defeated master. It is a defeated monarch that longs to remain in control. We know you are in control. Lord, thank you for what you declare to be true over us. May we have the courage and the strength to walk in this newness of life that you have given us. We thank you, Lord, for a time to be together to celebrate these realities and to encourage one another to walk in them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.